I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you, what got you Do you there find it difficult to remember anything you read? Do you procrastinate and become easily distracted? Do you spend too much time learning with disappointing results? If so, this episode with Dr. Barbara Oakley is going to help you learn like a pro. In this conversation, Dr. Oakley will uncover the science-based tools to become better at anything. Dr. Oakley is a professor of engineering and co-created and taught Learning How to Learn, powerful mental tools to help you master tough subjects, the world's most popular online course. Barbara also has a new book, Learn Like a Pro, Science-Based Tools to Become Better at Anything. Get ready for a fascinating conversation on becoming a better learner. Anyone looking for a new job this year, or are you a company who's looking to hire great talent? If so, you might want to check out the job hiring platform, Culture Finders. I'm sure you're thinking, what's different about Culture Finders compared to the other job hiring platforms? Well, Other platforms only focus on your job skills and trying to match you with as many companies as possible. What Culture Finders does different is that they uncover the preferences, personalities, unique talents, and abilities that make up each job seeker and matches them with the company that these traits best align. It's not about sending 100 jobs, but about connecting you with the right job. We know your value to companies goes beyond your resume, and it's time you find a company that sees yours. Job seekers create your free profile today at culturefinders.com. And if you're a company hiring, you get a free job posting today. That's culturefinders.com. Oh yeah, just so you guys know, Culture Finders and What Got You There is actually hiring right now. So jump on culturefinders.com to create your free profile and hopefully we'll be working together soon. Barbara, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing just great. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. I'm very excited to feature you. you. You, of course, know how much of an impact your work's had on me. And so anytime there, there's someone like that, uh, that we can learn from, it, it's always exciting for me. But I, I'd love to start around, we can call them non-negotiables. And I'm wondering if you have any non-negotiables or routines that you structure your day around that you just feel give you a tremendous amount of benefit in your life. Mm, that is a really good question. Because a lot of what I do, it, it involves being really flexible. So, like, everyone has periods in their life where they can't, like, I try to read a book a week. Well, when I, you know, had kids, forget that. That was just not possible. And, like, I'm working on my doctoral dissertation. That's just not possible to be reading for fun like that. But, um, so, I think... Probably my one non-negotiable is being um, flexible. So not saying, okay, I have to do this or that, especially given whatever that era is in my my unfolding life. Um, but even during a week, there may be days where I'm just packed and there's dawn to dusk uh, meetings and so forth. And you know, to try and sit there and say, well, I'm going to study my neuroscience, you know, that I'm really fascinated by the procedural system, and I shall probably bore you in a fascinating way with uh, insights from that system, which has really gotten my attention. But I, I, I can't make myself be 
focusing on that every single day because in much as I want to, just because, you know, life intervenes. Yeah, I would love to even double click on this because just you mentioned, I mean, life does intervene and, and we have certain periods of times where we're just so busy, our days are packed and we can't get to some of those things we'd like to. So I'm wondering, how do you think about your weekly calendar then um, in terms of prioritizing both those things you have to, but then throwing in some of those other things that you'd like to do? I think I think about it like the four seasons of the year. Um, there are some seasons when you can um, r- really prioritize. Um, you've got some spare time. I can do a little bit of language learning. I can do some writing. I can do some focusing on my background research. And then there's some periods where it's like it's winter. You just have to survive. You know, so it's, I, I described it to a friend recently. So I have two books coming out from two different major publishers, Penguin Random House and St. Martin's, two MOOCs coming out from the top, so massive open online courses coming out from the two top um, platforms of online learning, uh, Coursera and edX, all within a two-week period starting in five days. So I feel now like it's like I'm riding the tiger and uh, um, you know, you just kind of go with the flow and you're trying to just make sure that you don't. I, and I mean, sometimes what I do is I just imagine to myself, oh, I'm sitting in a taxi and I'm going by and I think, oh, doesn't that look dangerous? Uh, you know, uh, oh, gee, you know, but I'm not driving. I'm just kind of going along and watching it unfold. And if you think of it that way as you're just doing the best you can every day, um, then you it, it's it's a little easier to handle the fact that you're getting hundreds of emails and you know, different things that are overwhelmingly important in the moment. And you just, you can only do so much. So you just do what you can and try not to get all bent out of shape and uh, watch it flow by and think, wow, that looks really busy. (laughs) Uh, Instead of, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. It it almost sounds like I'm having a conversation with Lao Tzu from the Tao Te Ching. Have you found that having that mindset has just been so influential? And and if so, I'm just wondering when you adopted this within your career, kind of letting things flow by and and not getting too concerned with all the chaos that we can ensue in our lives. Hmm, I think it's, um, let's see, what, I think I was reading a book called The One Thing, and that book pointed out that when you're, that oftentimes to be super productive, you kind of need to be riding the edge of what any human being can actually handle. And you almost need to be over the edge. Um, and, and I thought, well, that seems kind of like odd advice, but then I, I really yeah, got to thinking about it and it's true, um, in the sense that you, you do prioritize and there's going to be times in your life when you'll get overwhelmed with stuff, but that's the nature of things. And, you know, five years are going to go by and in five years, you're not even really going to think about this time. So you just kind of do what you can, um, without getting stressed overly. And, um, 
and I just try to remind myself, most of the work of doing the books and doing the moops is in the writing and the filming and the producing. And most, although not all, of that is all done. So just relax and go with the flow. Did you intentionally plan to have all four of these these massive things coming out within a two-week period? No. Okay. No. <laughs> I, I, I didn't know if you were someone who, who self-inflicted almost, that, that you enjoyed bringing on this much chaos in your life. No. No, it, no way, shape, or form. I mean, it's, it is bad. I remember when I'd have a book coming out, I'm like, oh, so busy. I've got a book coming out. And it's like, now I look back and laugh because it, it's um, now, you know, then I had a book and a course coming out simultaneously. That was really busy. And, and now I've got two books and two courses. And But I didn't plan that because uh, it's sort of, we planned this one book um, several years ago. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's a course called Learn Like a Pro and a book called Learn Like a Pro. And it's like, it's a little book. We intended it to be a nice short book. So 25,000 words, which is like, you know, like half or a little less than half a book. Well, you know, I got up to 35,000 words, but that's like half a book. It's very thin. And, but do you know how difficult it is to write a really short book? I, I mean, I I've never done it. So, well, it's like Pascal says, you know, I did not have the time to write a shorter letter. Um, because when you really think about it, it's, if you're trying to write something that is the condensed, crystallized essence of everything we know from neuroscience and cognitive psychology about effective learning, but done in a very readable way, but also that takes you into the science, and but it's all kind of condensed into this very readable format with kind of fun pictures, really cool pictures that, that illustrate everything. It takes a long time because you're sitting there going, now, does this really need to be in here? Or is there a way I can, can say this a little bit more concisely? So I wrote that with my co-author, Olaf Shewe. Uh, from Norway, and oh my goodness, back and forth. No, no, no. We can say this more, more cogently, and uh, you know, we can we can condense this a little more. So now it's very readable, but it takes a long time to get something that's just the crystallized essence. So anyway, that de delayed me quite a bit. It took a lot longer because the book was so short, and uh, and then so that was like I don't know probably put us maybe eight, nine months behind. And now uh, everything's coming out at once. It's like having twins. <laughs> Lucky <Or> you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that distillation process, that, that's something I, I feel like uh, the most elite people in their fields usually can crystallize things down. I, I would love just to hear a little bit more about that process with the book. And I'm assuming this pertains to a lot of other things you do as well. Are there big things people should be focused on in order to distill things down and crystallize them to their true essence? Yes. Um, for example, when you are learning something, there's um, that if you're really super smart, which I'm not. Yeah, I don't fall into that can, category. So we're, we're on the same page here. 
Okay. <laughs> you can hold a lot of information at, in mind at once. But that also means you have absolutely no reason to simplify. And actually, a lot of what learning is, is a, is a simplification. There is a crystallized essence of what you're learning. Like, let's say Euler's beautiful equation, um, which uh, synthesizes the idea that the number one is equal to a kind of a revolving uh, vector. So it's a mathematical, uh, Euler's equation is a beautiful mathematical equation that, that, so it's e to the j omega plus j, e to the j omega is equal to one. And, and what, if I'm remembering it correctly, but what it really is, is this rotating vector. And what you, so, you know, you may say, well, what does she really mean by that? But if you saw an image of it, you'd go, you mean that's all it is? Really? This, this incredibly, you know, if you're not mathematically inclined, it looks like a complicated equation, but it's not. It's just, and so what I used to do for my classes was I had a toilet paper unrolling and tracing the two parts of the the to, of the of Euler's equation, you know, onto the the um, toilet paper roll, and um, it, it's just beautiful. And it but it's very very simple. But one thing that has surprised me is so, uh, you know, everyone as a writer develops as as they get more and more experience writing. But but because I often, I write books and then I turn those books into massive open on, online courses, but the, I play, play fair. So the information in the books are roughly analogous to what's in the course, but it's, it's done differently. So whichever way you do it, you kind of see a new, a fresh perspective. But the one thing to be aware of is when you're turning something you've written in a book into something you're saying on screen, you have to say it much more simply, much more crisply, and, and in a much um, shorter way. And sometimes I'll write a, you know, a chapter of a book and I'm like, man, there's no way anybody could ever say it more briefly or concisely than I did, you know, and I'm like really super smug about it and everything. And then I go to write the scripts for the massive open online course. And then I'm like, Oh my gosh, I could have said this so much more concisely. And Hey, there's this other funny example that I could bring in and I can visualize it. It's a really, it's like painting in a completely different format. Um, but when you're learning from a book as opposed to learning online, they each have these valuable ways of giving you insight. And it's so fun to be able to paint, so to speak, in both formats. I, I want to dive in, into both formats to kind of clear up, are you, an, an audio, visual, how, how do you learn best? But I'm wondering, have you ever flipped the model of how you write and start by dictating the words? I mean, I'm just curious if you ever tried that. I um, I'm the kind of person that I get something out of on a page, 
And then I start rearranging it and I, you know, I, I kind of, um, I don't think very well in words. Hmm. I think with my fingers, um, I think it's just what I'm used to, uh, that if I had started by dictating and so forth, that I could take a dictation and then start kind of messing around and refining it. But I'm so used to, you know, pausing and thinking that, I mean, if I tried to do it by dictation, I think half of it would be, now, wait a minute, what do I really want to say here? And I'm almost a little self-conscious to say it in dictation, but I can, I, I, I'm sure that if I was forced to do it within weeks, I would be going, no, oh, this format works pretty well too. Yeah, I'm, I'm always just curious people's processes and how they're refined. But but I would love to know, because um, we hear a lot of people say, you know what, I'm, I'm a visual learner. That's the only way I learn. How much truth is in that in terms of the different types and the ways we learn? Is this just about people haven't gotten enough muscle repetition around certain strategies? Or do we actually have tendencies to be leaning one way or the other? So you, This is a very complicated question. The, the, the big, like all the people who I really admire or almost all the people I really admire in, in uh, cognitive psychology are like, there is no such thing as learning styles. So some people think they're visual. Some people think that they learn better by hearing. But w in truth, if th they've done tests and those who think they learn better by hearing actually don't seem to do any better than those who do uh, their learning by, um, you know, by reading. So, uh, so that has been used as a mechanism to kind of discount any form of, um, you know, that people have different learning styles. But if you take a step way back and look at the, the brain and how it operates, there's two major learning highways that we have. One is declarative, and that goes through the hippocampus. The second is procedural, that goes through the basal ganglia. Sets of neural links that are put into long-term memory by each of these two systems do different things and allow us to operate differently. So some people prefer to learn declaratively. And it seems that, um, for example, so this is step-by-step -step learning. Unfortunately, it is procedures. So you think that's procedures is procedural learning, but it's not, you know, if you follow procedures, it's step-by-step. -step. So it does seem that, um, that, for example, estrogen uh, seems to uh, swivel things so that People with higher estrogen, um, they prefer to learn more declaratively. Also, those with dyslexia or who have a propensity towards dyslexia seem to prefer learning more declaratively. And this is, this is that kind of very step-by-step -step logical approach to learning. Procedural learning, on the other hand, uh, if you have less estrogen or you are more on the autism spectrum disorder, this type of learning, uh, you have a bit more of a propensity towards this approach. This appro approach is, um, 
it's like you like to get your hands on something and and learn it by getting your hands and doing it or you're learning patterns for example children learn complex the complex patterns of their native language by through their procedural largely through their procedural systems so um if you look at it this way when someone says i'm a kinesthetic learner ah could that be they're more procedurally inclined but i dare not say this uh actually because the bulk of people who I greatly respect in a cognitive psychology say that learning styles are a big no-no. So uh, I just think that as we burrow in deeper, for sure, they are right about at least the results they're showing with relation to whether some people are visual versus audio. But I do think it's pretty clear to everyone that people do learn differently and there are some patterns to how they learn differently. So it will be a fascinating um, thing to watch unfold in the future. Yes, yeah, speaking about watching things unfold in the future, I mean, you're, you're at the forefront of the cutting edge, or a lot around the neuroscience of what's happening. I'm wondering if you think about the next 10 years, where do you think the, the biggest gains and leaps in our knowledge around learning are going to take place? I think the neuroscience of learning is going to um, help quite a bit with um, with changing and improving um, people's abilities to learn. Uh, but you have to remember that every system that is currently in place always has a vested interest in keeping that system in place. So what this means is, for example, in education, that um, you know we may have these new insights in neuroscience, but by golly, integrating and you know t- incorporating some of these ideas. For example, um, current educational practice is that drill is equal to kill. That drill is a bad thing to ever do. Having rote memorization is terrible for children. And actually, it turns out that's not true at all. Um, drill helps us skill. It helps us to learn things so well that we can do them without even thinking about them. And that is actually the reason that we have this procedural system of learning. And so it's um, a very, uh, it's a very important system. And yet it is like antithetical to how many modern reform educators uh, perceive these kinds of things. So, my hope is that over the next 10 years, there, there will be shifts in how people learn and that we will be able to overcome the inertia of past approaches. But it's, it's not going to be easy to make these changes because it's not like people sit there and go, yeah, I just really want to change my whole way of doing things because neuroscience and cognitive psychology are coming up with these great new insights. That's just not the way it works. Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, change is, is one of the only inevitable things. So you, you kind of wish that people would be more willing to adopt some of these things. I, I'm really curious because you were just talking kind of about like really drilling things home, getting a lot of repetitions. Uh, I, I grew up in, and had a sports background, so I'm very familiar with, with reps, 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 um, kind of just practicing those basics every single day, no matter how advanced I became. Uh, I'm wondering, though, 
um, as people think about that repetition, do we learn fundamentally differently, say from practicing shooting a free throw in basketball? Is how we learn that, is that going to be different than how we, we practice and study, call it just a math equation? Uh, yes and no. So we learn math by learning declaratively. So we have a declarative explanation but we also learn procedurally. So how you learn to, um, you know, throw a basketball or kick a soccer ball or, you know, lots of sports skills, that's very definitely through the procedural system. But when you look at, a, at an equation, so if you know math, you would know that the one over one over K can be simplified to K. So just the, you know, one over the reciprocal of something just amounts to that something. If so, you kind of think of that and you're like, what, what is that? But if you know math, it's just like you can automatically throw that ball into the hoop. It's so easy mentally. So math is a mental skill and that knowledge where you instantly see relationships, where you instantly know the multiplication table, all of that is using the procedural system, that same system that you use for sports. And unfortunately, what has happened is because, you know, and this goes back, 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 back to uh, there was a big dissension between two uh, kind of lions who were, uh, there was B.F. Skinner, who was very much into habitual kinds of learning, procedural learning, that you, you practice with something and repeat it just as you did with sports. And then, um, but he was kind of a, let's see, how can I put this in politic fashion? <laughs> let's say he was a, an abrupt, abrasive individual who did not tolerate anyone who thought differently than he was. And it's not that he was an evil human being. You know, he wasn't a liar or anything like that. He was a very honest, but he believed deeply in his approaches. So he blocked any other kinds of research on, for example, declarative type learning. So Noam Chomsky from MIT, the linguist, uh, sort of attacked quite vitriolically and um, at least according to the defenders of B.F. Skinner, quite unfairly, um, he attacked Skinner's work and he, he sort of set everything up so that this idea of, of drilling to learn something mentally was an anathema. And if you're just looking superficially at learning, it sounds right. It's like, why memorize the multiplication tables? We want them to be thinking at a higher level than that kind of stuff. But it's kind of like saying, you know, we want our basketball players to all be playing at a high level. So we're not going to have them do the basic drill. You know, you need that basic drill to get basic fundamental skills. So, but what, you know, what happened was as Skinner made fun of a lot of, uh, I mean, not as Skinner, as Chomsky made fun of a lot of Skinner's approaches, then people just stopped drilling hmm. of mental kinds of things. And even learning to read that drill of phonics where you learn a certain letter is associated with a certain sound 
even that was stopped. And of course, the result was, and it's grudgingly becoming finally acknowledged that getting rid of phonics is not a good idea. Um, but so what happened was education got this big wash through it that any kind of drill uh, was a bad thing. Um, and, and so it sort of created, I mean, like starting from the, the 1970s, even within a given family, IQ scores in, in Western countries begin a dramatic decline. And people are like, what the heck? But if you think about it, if the brain has two major learning systems, declarative for explanatory sorts of things, and then this more intuitive um, for complex patterns, but also you have to kind of know things by heart of the procedural system. If the brain learns both ways and you get rid of one way, actually, yeah, I mean, how uh, getting a good education is what what IQ scores actually depend on. And if you get rid of one of the major systems, it's no wonder that IQ scores began to decline even within families as the educational systems begin to change. So those basics essentially become the, the foundational building blocks that all the rest of the knowledge gets built on top of, correct? That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, something you brought up earlier, which was just really interesting to me, is you were talking about how, how your life kind of fluctuates within different seasons. Does the same hold true for how we learn? Could, could we actually like distill down a year? Do we have different peak learning periods and then even distill that down further to a day where there are certain times that we learn best at? Oh, that's an interesting question. So let me look at it first on sort of a, 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 a massive scale. And that is when we're young, we learn better procedurally. And as we grow older, our declarative systems come online. So we're able to learn through explanations. This is why little kids uh, can really excel under the Montessori approach, uh, where there's a lot of experiential, hands-on kind of. Uh, but Montessori as you can see, um, or if you kind of know about education, it's not as popular or common as you grow higher in uh, into middle school and high school. And, and probably the reason for that is because the material there is quite different. Um, there's two, so uh, David Geary is, um, he's a cognitive psychologist with a wonderful background in neuroscientist, has posited uh, with some good evidence that there's really kind of two categories of learning. And there is a crossover, of course. But the, the, the first category, I'll call it the easy stuff to learn. And this is stuff that you might not necessarily think of as easy, like facial recognition. I mean, that's actually, that's pretty hard stuff for um, machine learning and artificial intelligence to do. But babies can come out and recognize faces within days. So it's, it's easy stuff. We're sort of pre-programmed for it. And likewise, when it comes to um, learning with... Um, 
uh, your native language. That's really tough to learn. I mean, adults struggle learning, but babies come out and within a couple of years, they got it all pretty much figured out. You know, they may struggle a little bit with irregularities, but they got it. So this kind of information is, um, it's, it's something uh, that is called biologically primary material or cognitive processing uh, by David Geary. But it's, it's really stuff that our brain is designed naturally to do. But as you grow up with things like learning to read, we were not designed to learn how to decipher little uh, bits and squiggles on paper and figure out that that correlates with something that we might actually say or think. And likewise, writing and likewise, mathematics. All of these are things that we never did from an evolutionary perspective. And so what that means is that these, um, the way we can do these things is that we repurpose circuits that we normally use for other things. So for example, all around the world, whether you learn Chinese uh, ideographs or writing or whatever, it always seems that we move one part um, of, of the brain called the fusiform gyrus, the left, the stuff that used to be handling facial recognition in the left fusiform gyrus kind of gets shifted over to make room for learning how to read. So this shifting of where processing takes place is not easy. And it's something that um, as children get older and we start asking them to learn these evolutionary secondary or biologically secondary processes, these are really a lot harder than the stuff we're naturally geared to do. And so um, we often blame school teachers. Oh, you know, they killed their love of learning. But actually, no, it's like, no, they didn't. It's it's just harder stuff, and you got to learn in a different way than you do, you know, with procedural as you're uh, a young person. So, so from a mega perspective, there's lots of changes going on as, uh, you know, as children mature. There's changes within their brain. They begin to learn more declaratively than procedurally, um, and also the stuff they're learning is harder and it requires a lot of rewiring. So as we get older, we often use more declarative to help get some stuff into our brains and then we practice with it. So we develop it procedurally, but then, so now uh, I have a poor working memory, so I'm trying to come back. Uh, so as far as day to like on a day, you know, are there times it turns out that there are um, about 40% of us are morning larks, 30% are night owls. So we prefer to do our best work at certain times, depending on our underlying genetics. And those underlying genetics, it's quite interesting. It does seem that um, the Neanderthals who were in Northern Europe for like, you know, 100,000 or more years, uh, a lot of Europe gets dark, and you know during the in the northern latitudes, 
and it you know it's it's posited that it it kind of made it so that circadian rhythms weren't quite as important like you know if you're if you got pretty much 24 hours a day of darkness it doesn't matter so much or 24 hours a day of lightness and indeed when i used to work in antarctica uh and my husband wintered over there several times and and he said you know, as he wintered over, I mean, after a while, it just, you kind of roll through the days because you didn't have anything to like pin your day on. But anyway, so it does seem that those with Neanderthal genes, some there's like, I don't know, anywhere between two to 4% of many people or, or many people have two to 4% uh, Neanderthal genes. And it seems that some of those uh, night owl genes may be from the Neanderthals. So I, I think that's just so cool. Um, and then there's mixture. So there are some times of day that are better for others, um, but also taking naps can, you know, can like refresh you. So if you are a morning person, you can still be better in the evening if you've taken a nap during the day and that kind of thing. Um, in general, people uh, have like four hours of well, maybe two of super, super strength and four hours of, you know, like where they're really pretty good. Uh, but after that time, um, it's harder to do really your freshest, best work for most people. And this is all uh, based on the work of Anders Ericsson um, or Eric. No. <laughs> yeah, Anders Ericsson. Uh, yeah, I'm like, oh, I'm always mixing up which one's which. Uh, but he's got two S's in there in a row, too, which is also. But on his uh, untimely demise, uh, what was it? It was like a year and a half ago. Yeah, right Everybody. about that. Barbara, one of the things I'm really intrigued about is, is you mentioned the average person has about two hours of, let's just call it super productive time throughout the day, and then there might be another four hours where, where they're pretty good. Do you think the way we approach work needs to be kind of just flipped on its head and rethought if we're only productive that amount of time? Um, it's a little bit like saying that, um, well, if let's say your job is as a truck driver, um, well, you're not going to just yeah. <laughs> work for two hours, but let's say that you're, um, that your job is as a mental type of worker there are usually routine humdrum things that you can do in those, you know, in the times that are maybe less productive for you. So for me, for example, answering emails, unless it's a really something that's really difficult, a lot of emails are, are kind of a, they're almost like a, a friendly correspondence and, and they don't demand peak mental alertness. And I think it's that way for most people's jobs. You just kind of schedule around. So you use the those peak uh, hours for certain things and then the other activities for other, for other kinds of things or other times. Yeah. When, when I'm pestering you via email to, to, to send me your recent work and, and more interesting things you're studying, of course, that, that mandatory um, peak, peak states are, are not needed there. I, I am really intrigued, though, because one of the things that a lot but of people- now, but right now, that's when peak alertness is needed. Yeah. So fortunately, I do have the bandwidth right now, so I'm like not totally exhausted today. No, I'm no, no. very- Upbeat, yeah. And I appreciate that. One of the things, though, is there's plenty of times where 
we're just not feeling very motivated, that procrastination starts to kick in. What have you found and where does the research lay in, in terms of overcoming some of that and being able to, to get over those states? So there's, there's two types of, um, you can call it kind of two flavors of dopamine and how dopamine is released in the body. First is tonic dopamine. And that's like this little big, you know, it releases it in these little tiny bursts. And this tonic dopamine is released around cells. So let's say that you are curious about, uh, you're curious about this one um, problem that you've been trying to figure out. And oops, sorry about that. You're curious about this one problem. You've been trying to figure it out. You tried and tried and tried. Finally, after three days, you have figured out, you know, and you've spent maybe an hour of your peak time um, over those three days, you figured it out. When you figure it out, you get little tonic um, burst of dopamine and all of the neurons that were in kind of this little trail that led to you getting the, the solution. It's like that dopamine goes, oh, I'm sniffing that those neurons out and it goes to those connections and it releases dopamine and it, uh, that dopamine actually helps strengthen those connections. So this is how you learn. Um, It's, it's a stimulus response reward based learning. That is what BF Skinner was always studying and proposing and it turns out that this way of learning is actually really, really beneficial, um, you know, in, in very complicated things like figuring out how to solve a problem. So this phasic dopamine helps you learn. Tonic dopamine is released more generally through the brain. So it's kind of like Muzak when you're in a you know, grocery store, it's this background music. That's all it's, it's kind of behind around you. Um, this is what helps motivate us. So in fact, this uh, tonic dopamine is why sometimes people will well, take things like coffee and so forth. Cause it, it, it does help a little bit, it seems. Um, and there's other drugs, but we won't go into that um, because actually these drugs can increase your tonic dopamine, which can make you more motivated, but it also throws your system out of whack. And so you do it once and you're like, this is great. You start doing it a couple of times and you're throwing your system increasingly out of whack, which is why it's not a good idea to take things like Adderall and modifinol and so forth. But but be that as it may be, certain mental thoughts and states can help you release this tonic dopamine. So in other words, let's say like I had a student, you know, and he wasn't the greatest engineering student and it was really hard for him, uh, but he was working and really doing it. And it's usually these ones who are like not the best students that turn around like 10 years later and write me, you know, I just won the top engineering award, you know, for the most creative breakthrough that helped the company that it's almost always these folks. So this guy was one of these guys, but anyway, he had worked at a chicken farm during the summer 
in Maryland. And he had a picture of a chicken farm. And if you've ever worked in a chicken farm, they're really repulsive and disgusting places. Um, they, they're hot. You know, there's dead chickens sometimes. And it's just like, well, maybe you don't want to eat chicken after this. But it's, it's not the nicest place to work. And he decided to become an engineer because he didn't want to, ha- to do that kind of work the rest of his life. So he, he kept that picture. And whenever he'd feel himself going, you know, I just can't do this. I'm just, you know, I, I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. He'd look at that picture and that would help him think and reframe and get some phasic or some tonic dopamine going that says, you know, keep slogging through this. Um, you know, it, it helps with your motivation. So these little tools, mental tricks of reframing, you know, for example, even for me right now with two books and two courses coming out in two weeks from one another, I reframe it as, well, gosh, isn't this interesting? <laughs> you know, look at what's going on. Look, well, isn't this fun? Look at all these emails here instead of, oh, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed with things. And, you know, it, the reality is next month is going to come and it's it's going to start getting less busy. And if I just frame it mentally as I do what I can do and that's what I do, that is way better on my whole psyche and on my productivity than getting all bent out of shape because I'm getting overwhelmed with things. Yeah, you're hitting on something that's been just a a fundamental mindset shift for me, and that's approaching all things from the state of curiosity, where, like you mentioned, there could be chaos, all of these difficult problems, but there's a curious element to all of these, right? Like, where's the learning in this? Um, And so I feel like when I approach things from there, it's very helpful. And then one of the things that I I really started to do after taking your course, learning how to learn, is I I usually operate from this, like, pretty scratchy place where, you know, sometimes it's difficult to get going and working. It's like, hey, do I clean the office? Do I grab a drink? What do I do? And just doing the Pomodoro technique. So usually it's 25 minutes on, five minutes off. I, I tend to go about 30 minutes on, five minutes off. And I, mm-hmm. I've realized when when I'm kind of feeling that procrastination kick in, throw the clock on. And that's been extremely helpful. Um, so that's something I, I learned from you that's just really beneficial for me. Oh, yeah. Well, even for me, I um, one thing I do is I, I kind of have um, – I, I try not to be super, super strict about making myself always be super productive. So I do, I use the Pomodoro. And if I find that I've been kind of farting around online and, oh, well, oh, gee, that video is so funny, you know. Uh, and, and I, you know, if I, I let myself do a little of that because I think it's good for creativity. Um, but then when I start feeling like, okay, Barb, come on, uh, the Pomodoro is like the world's greatest tool. I salute Francesco Cedillo. I mean, he's just an amazing guy to have devised this, this wonderful system. And it's so simple. I mean, you just, you get all distractions away, set a timer for 25 minutes Focus as intently as you can for 25 minutes, and and you can fiddle with that time. And then relax and reward yourself mentally, like a cup of tea or something like that for five minutes. Everything we know from neuroscience is like, that is so spot on. 
because the 25 minute time frame gets you past the 20 minute, you know, after about 20 minutes of working on something you get, so you start liking it and, you know, no interruptions and so forth. Uh, that's really good for getting, being, you know, more focused and really accomplishing more during that time frame. You know, it's and and you're training yourself to focus because if you have a little bit of reward when you're done, you actually learn to enjoy the focusing process itself. Yeah, Barbara, I know when you're in one of those creative modes because you just keep emailing me all these cat videos and things like that. So I know that's when you need to, <laughs> to start throwing in the Pomodoro technique. I, I am I am curious though. You mentioned blocking out distractions and things of that nature. Are there other little things we do, such as noise canceling headphones? I know a lot of people like to listen to to certain music, things like that. Which of these things might actually help our performance, and which ones are, are degrading it, um, but we think might be beneficial? So some people swear by binaural beats, um, which is uh, a certain, so you have one frequency in one ear, another frequency in another ear, and they combine, and the theory goes that they can help synchronize um, uh, sort of uh, neural wavelengths to allow you to focus more effectively. And there's, there's a little bit of evidence that that may be uh, true, but it's also, it's kind of irritating to just listen to the straight binaural beats. So people will embed them in, um, you know, in, in music. And then, of course, that can defeat the purpose because you can get caught up in the music. And But for some people, though, it doesn't really bother them. If you have a like a high um, working memory capacity, you can usually you know, do stuff and listen to music and it's no big deal. If you don't have a high working memory capacity, that is, let's say you're trying to take notes and you're trying to concentrate on what the professor says, but you're also trying to write down what the professor says. If you find that you lose track of what the professor is saying as you're writing things down, you probably are like me and don't have a big working memory capacity. So in that sense, probably listening to music is a little less, you know, something that you do want to do. Um, uh, let's see. They often say list, uh, when you're doing math, you shouldn't be listening to music because, um, you know, they kind of overlap. Um, but on the other hand, one of the world's greatest mathematicians was Johnny von Neumann, and he used to love to listen to marching, marching music when he was in Princeton and he, and you know, Albert Einstein would apparently come down the hall, Johnny, you're playing the music too loud. Uh, um, but personally, I swear by, I have these gigantic earphones and I don't use noise canceling or anything. I just have like straight big earphones and I wear them everywhere. I mean, if I go to an airport, I'll plop them on. I don't care if I look ridiculous uh, people, for some reason, don't bother me, um, <laughs> you know, but it, uh, I can, what I love about these earphones is like, I can sit in the living room, be working on my stuff. My husband's watching television or listening to his music and we're sitting together as happy as, you know, yeah, two little, you know, love bugs sitting together. And it's just, it's really nice. So I, I think that having a big set of earphones is probably my most productive tool. 
yeah, I, I found a lot of benefits when I throw in big headphones as well. And, and also with noise canceling, it's funny, we've kind of talked about like the tempo of our energy and capacity. I was kind of asking more around the seasonality of things. I found there are certain days and times where my mind's working really well, where if I throw in music, it's almost this like trigger event to help me almost feel like I, I learn even quicker. And then other times, the second I turn on music, my mind is just, I, I can only concentrate on the music. And I think that's just kind of being more attuned with, with styles and, and how you're operating that day. Um, yeah. One thing I, I've been surprised that I do, I do take that I think is beneficial is there's a certain form of chocolate called Cocovia. I think it's C-O-C-O-V-I-A. Um, um, and so chocolate we know can kind of help improve cognitive processes, but a lot of times, you know, of course, when you're eating a bunch of chocolate, it often has sugar in it. And even if it doesn't, if it's a really dark chocolate without much sugar, it has a lot of the beneficial flavonoids uh, processed out of it. So I, I do take Cocovia um, chocolate in the morning. They're like in little capsules. And I think that I'm sharper on. So, for example, I took it this morning and I'm sharper today, I think, than I would have been without them. Yeah, that's that's why, that's why you've been laser focused. I, I appreciate taking the uh, the cocoa via. <laughs> I'm wondering, it's something you've you've talked about a few times here. It's it's something I I do every single day and love, and and that's reading. And I I know my process. There's definitely some room for an improvement. I would love to know, just like high level, what are the best ways that we should be approaching that whatever the subject matter is that we're reading. Oh, whew. you know, because it depends a lot on what kind of thing you're reading. So for me, for example, so I'm reading a book a week, but I try to read about a wide variety of things. So sometimes, I mean, my tendency is I love history and I can sit there and read history like there's no tomorrow, uh, so to speak. But um, the, what I often do is I'll start with, you know, let's say I'm reading something mathematical. So, for example, recently I read the Book of Why uh, by Judea Pearl about causality. And I can only read, I read on a Kindle. So I, I will say, I'm going to read 2% of, my, of this book tonight or 3%, something like that. And if it's a really heavy going book, maybe 1%. And I will just slowly, so I'll like put it out sometime and it looks like, oh, I read the book in that week. But often it, it can sometimes take me months to read a book. Whereas, um, and so I might read one or 2% of a heavy book that I'm working away through. And then I'll be um, uh, as... I, I read in the evenings, and as the evening goes by, I get to the lighter and lighter books. And usually for me, history is like the lightest. It's the the, the easiest to read. So, um, but I just, um, I suppose you could call it in this historical category, just finished a book called The Tiger, um, which was just fantastic. Um, it, it's a, a history well, kind of a history, but it was a man-eating tiger in the um, Primorskaya region right by the Pacific at the uh, the far edge of Russia. And it was how this guy, 
I was shocked. I got to the end of the book and it was like, he doesn't even speak Russian. He had a translator as he was going to all these places and learning all of this. So I think he had some really good people, you know, helping him, but he was a magnificent writer about, uh, about this whole episode. So I, I just could hardly wait of a day to, you know, well, let's see, is it, it's like seven o'clock yet. Um, can I start reading? Uh, because I, I don't want to start, you know, a lot of times with my family, uh, you know, I might call it quits around five or so. We have dinner and so forth. And um, and then, then in the evening, I try to get away from the computer screen. So reading is my thing. But I go to bed relatively early, um, like nine o'clock, sometimes even eight o'clock. Um, and, but I get up very early too. So that's my work a day. I got you. I, I'm wondering, so, so say we're reading just a, a nonfiction business book. Um, I, I have the tendency to highlight, underline, and then I, I do put things in the margin. How, how do we maximize this? Um, am I messing up by, by trying to highlight too much? Because what I end up doing is, is I'll read the book. And I, the way I picture reading, um, a lot of times for nonfiction, this depends on the book, but it's almost like driving a stick shift of a car. Like there's certain times I can just tell they're just going to tell this long story and I can kind of with my Kindle go through that extremely quickly. And then you get to the meat of mm-hmm. it and I can really dive deep into it. And so I, I try to highlight, kind of take some notes, and then I go and distill it down once I'm done the book entirely so I can always go back to these reference guides. Uh, I'm wondering where I, I'm almost wasting time with that. I don't think so. Okay. No. I think that's a perfect approach because – so the reality is you don't know the key ideas of this book until you put them in your own Brain until you've created sets of links that allow you to withdraw those ideas from your own brain. So what you're doing as far as putting notes down, um, you know, if there's a way that you can, like when you're out for a run or you're doing something external, if you can retrieve some of those key ideas uh, at other times, that will help you reinforce and remember those ideas so to me there's always a trade-off if you're at the upper edge of learning everything you can there is always this little bit of trade-off as you're reading something and you're taking careful notes and you're going back over it the question must come up of is this worth it because every time when you're stopping and taking notes you're reducing the amount of time that you have to be reading another book. Um, and so, and there's just, you know, there's just this enormous um, repository of fantastic ideas. And so, it, you know, so I'm always like cognitive because, or conscious of the fact that people will tell us the best ways to remember what's going on in these books. And that is great. But, they're also time consuming. So one must also recognize, and there's also the idea that, you know, if you make reading too onerous, so it's always, you only read for, you know, a specific learning purpose, you know, it starts to lose its allure. One thing that I think we often, especially us reading types forget is that if you take online courses, 
it can help you remember more easily without kind of the all the mental struggle necessarily that you have to do when you're reading to learn those ideas. Um, I do find that if I'm taking, say, a course in uh, neuroengineering and I really want to see what is happening with the neurons as, you know, as the different activations are occurring in different places, I can see it all at once. And it's really simple on the screen as the professor is explaining it. Whereas if I was reading his textbook, it would actually be much more difficult. So I I tend to read more because I do so much screen work during the day that, um, you know, that when I'm learning for fun, that it, um, I don't want to do that so much on the screen at night because I'm trying to get, a, I, I, I think that there's something about working on the computer and it's more than just the blue screen, you know, the blue light idea, but it's that when I'm, um, you know, when I'm working on screen, I'm working, I'm so active that I have to get myself away from it for a couple hours before I go to sleep. And reading a book is a great way for me to do that, to kind of chill down and so forth. Yeah, I'm I'm the exact same way. The end end of a long work day, I usually go out with the the family and the dog and we just go for a nice long walk, just just being in nature. And yeah, I I gave a really simplified version. You, you, about my reading process, you hit on a, a lot of great points. And that's as I'm distilling these down, I'm trying to connect them to other things I've read and where the commonalities lay. And then you bring up a great point um, around, like if you're taking an online course, so one of the things I'll do is I'll try to listen to an interview with the author or see them do a visual presentation so you can even get more of that. Um, A few of the techniques that that you hit on are great in your book, retrieval practice, space repetition, and then obviously interleaving. Um, We'll we'll have that linked up in the show notes so the, the listeners can dive deeper into that. But, but all of those things ha- have been incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, I'm wondering for you, though, you, you mentioned you read a lot of cross broad, varying, vast domains. For you, what outside of your domain expertise ha- have you spent the most time on that you think have actually just been overall really beneficial for you? Oh, uh, traveling. Yeah. <laughs> just, and I, of course, I've really been, you know, just missing the ability to travel over the last year and a half or so. But uh, I, there is something fantastic about seeing the world from these different perspectives. And, I, you know, so above and beyond reading, I, I, I love and I think it's really important. I mean, you know, you land in... China and it's yeah you know it's the middle of the night uh, to you but it's broad daylight to them and you're everything is completely different and you can't communicate and it's like why do you do this but there's just something good for the soul about getting thrown into really different I I, I guess I, I've come to the conclusion that in life we can only approach truth by seeing the world through as many perspectives as we possibly can. And we're human. We can't have endless perspectives. But, you know, I do think that if we, and and when we close ourselves off, that we, oh, we won't listen to someone because of whatever reason, um, you know, 
often we're just kind of closing ourselves off to really important and interesting and new different insights that would help could potentially help us grow. Um, sure. I mean, I do not want to sit around and talk with a psychopath. No, I'm not going to go there. But for uh, for many situations, um, you know, I just have learned so much by traveling and talking to people from all uh, walks of life in all parts of the world. So I, I just love that aspect of learning. Yeah, it's remarkable what we can learn, uh, what we can see when we open up and aren't afraid to have that be- that beginner's mind. I, I have to know uh, the amount you read. Are there any books that have really been foundational for you that you've just really enjoyed over the years? And that can be across any subject. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you've just enjoyed so much, thought brought a lot to your life. There, uh, oh gosh, it's like there's so many. Uh, uh, so let's see. Uh, what do I start with? Um, the the book by Peter Turchin, War and Peace on War, it is gives such a fantastic insight into why civilizations rise and why they fall. And his work is also based on the work of the great um, Arab um, sociologist of the like the 13 and 1400s, Ibn Khaldun. And Khaldun had, Ibn Khaldun had this idea of asabaya. And that is that you, um, like if you have two cultures that are completely different and they, for whatever reason, begin to clash with one another. So this is what happened, you know, with the Romans and the, uh, all the Germanic tribes coming down. It was like the Romans, you know, all the tribes around that area, you know, everybody hated each other. They didn't want to work together. And then it's kind of like, you know, if we don't work together, guess what? They're going to kill us all. (laughs) You know, they're going to overrun us. So we got to figure out a way to group together. And so um, similarly with the U.S., well, uh, Native Americans were quite different. So there was this, it caused a coalescence, you know, of uh, of the um, Europeans who had come to the country, you know, for good or for bad. And, of course, the Native Americans were attempting to coalesce, but they had such a, uh, a smaller number of people that it was pretty hard to coalesce against this onslaught of Europeans that were coming over and then you know, of course, uh, but in so many different uh, occasions uh, for the Russians, the Cossacks, and in Peter Turchin's book, he goes on and on about the Cossacks. And I'm realizing that I, that's what I'm doing about Peter Turchin's book right now. It's a fantastic book, uh, but it just talks about how, um, you know, having a boundary between two very different groups can cause those groups to coalesce together create empires for good or for bad, but then the empires begin to rot from within when they don't have those boundaries at the edges to keep them um, strong. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a fascinating um, sort of uh, explanation of how all of this occurs. So I've just gone on too long. No, 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 not at all. I, I've never read it, so this, this is interesting <laughs> It's a wonderful book. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. 
I, I know I there, there's a lot of people you admire. We, we can call them heroes. Uh, I, I'm just wondering if you could do this long form conversation, spend the evening just, just talking to anyone dead or alive, just not a family member or friend, who would you love just to have a long form conversation with? Hmm. Oh gosh. You know, um, Abraham Lincoln, I think, cause he was, you know, I mean, given the context of the time, I do think, you know, you'd have to be superhuman to climb out of the context of the time. And I think he was uh, imperfectly trying to do a lot of good for a lot of people, but he was also supposed to have been very funny. So that would be really fun to spend an evening with him. Yeah, he's a he's a very interesting, from, from what I've read, uh, that, that would be a fascinating evening conversation. Bar- oh, yeah, and Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, no, you feature him uh, in in the new book, Learn Like a Pro, and one of the chapters. I think chapter seven starts off with a, oh, a great Teddy it. Roosevelt story. Yeah, so big big fan of Roosevelt uh, and everything he's done. But Barbara, this, this has been fascinating for me. Uh, of course, you already know the the amount your work's impacted me. You've got a lot going on right now, and I want to make sure we link the listeners up. Uh, I, I know they're going to be all over your new book, Learn Like a Pro, Science-Based Tools to Become Better at Anything. What are the other things you have going on? Where should we send the listeners so they can stay up to date on your books and then also your courses? Oh, okay. So if you just go to barbaraoakley.com, you'll see the link to uh, Learn Like a Pro, which is not out yet in the US, but I see it's already got a review on Amazon by one of the the Vine um, reviewers who loved it. But it's it's just come out in Japan and it's apparently doing like gangbusters there. Um, there's also going to be um, on the same date, June 1st, we will have a course called Learn Like a Pro coming out from edX. And oh my gosh, this course is so freaking good. It, it like, if you have the book and you watch the videos, you will remember everything. You know, because it's done in such a funny but memorable way that really illustrates the point. So you don't have to like try to imagine things. I mean, you can see it and it sticks in your mind. At the same time, uh, on June 15th, uh, we'll be coming out uh, my book for teachers. Um, and it, it's co written with my wonderful colleagues, Beth Rogowski, who's a teacher of teachers and a professor of pedagogy at Bloomsburg University. And of course, my longtime collaborator, uh, Terrence Sanowski, who is the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute and the director there of their computational neuroscience laboratory. And uh, so this book is called Uncommon Sense Teaching. It's, uh, it is teaching as you have never seen it before. I mean, you'll see these books for teachers about the neuroscience of learning. And it's all about, well, you have the amygdala and don't say, you know, get the amygdala upset, you know, and it's like, come on, how's that really going to help your teaching? No, this really goes, what are those two major pathways of learning? You know, procedural, declarative, basal ganglia and uh, hippocampus. Why are they different? How can you use, how can you teach to one pathway versus another? How does working memory actually differ? Um, what instruction should you use for a higher capacity, you know, like Terry versus a lower capacity working memory like me? 
you're going to have that kind of spread in a typical classroom. So anyway, that will be coming out from Penguin Random House on June 15th, along with the massive open online course on common sense teaching, which I am working crazily on, even in my mind right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Barbara Oakley, your first course, Learning How to Learn, was foundational for me. I recommend it to people all the time. So very much looking forward to to taking the next one as well. We're going to have all this linked up in the show notes. But Barbara Oakley, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There? Well, Sean, thank you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.